none of us went to school and were educated on what to do when a wildfire destroys your entire town. That was Michelle John, superintendent of Paradise Unified School District, where many students returned to the district for the first time this week after the devastating fire that virtually destroyed the community last November. Welcome to This Week in California Education. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Summer's almost over, and this week, students return to schools in many places around California but nowhere were they more closely watched than in paradise. And students are also returning to school in the shadow of the Walmart shootings in El Paso by a gunman targeting Latinos and at the Garlic Festival in Gilroy, which are having an emotional impact on many students. Also this week, the controversy over a draft ethnic studies curriculum got hotter. The Department of Education has received more than 5,000 comments, mostly negative, that the proposed document written by an advisory group of ethnic studies teachers and professors, has a politically slanted and narrow view of ethnic studies. And in fact, criticism reached such intensity that the top education leaders in the state, State Board of Education President Linda Darling-Hammond and State Superintendent of Public Instruction Tony Thurmond tried to calm everyone down by saying that the draft curriculum is just a first draft and would have to be substantially revised before it will be considered by the state board early next year. In Sacramento, lawmakers return to the Capitol after their summer recess, and they're on a fast track to approve a lot of legislation. One of the bills is whether to extend the ban on suspensions for willful defiance, which is in place for just K-3, to extend it to all grades. Senator Nancy Skinner is carrying a bill to do just that, and she argued in a commentary on our website that reducing willful defiance suspensions was one way to disrupt the school-to-prison pipeline. And by willful defiance suspensions, Lewis, you're referring to the vague category in state law that allows schools to suspend students for willfully defying school authorities. Many critics say that ensnares black students disproportionately and unfairly. If you want to find out more about what other legislation is on the docket in Sacramento, you can go to our website and check out our bill trackers on key legislation that affects early education, K-12 schools, and higher education. Let's turn now to Paradise. We're pleased to have on the line Michelle John. She's superintendent of the Paradise Unified School District where students return to school this week. Superintendent John, what do you anticipate in terms of the emotional needs of students and families? That is really our focus for this year. Last Wednesday, we did an entire staff kickoff day, and it was focused around teachers' self-care and social and emotional development. We have brought in double the amount of counselors for this year for our students and staff. We have brought in certain programs like mindfulness and mindful littles. And every day we are working with students to ensure doing a check-in for them to ensure that we know where they are for the day and we know that they're ready to learn. And if there are some social or emotional issues getting in the way, that we have counselors right there on every site to help students and staff. Now, some of these students, have you been working with them already in the adjoining districts in Chico and other places? Well, most of our students actually were with us. Some of the districts last year immediately called the day of the fire and they said, we have so many extra classrooms, you can bring your staff. 
So it was very important for our students to stay with their teachers whom they love and love them and their school settings. So our kids were in other schools last year, but they were with their own teachers and that helped a great deal. And we've had counseling available to students since the day of the fire. So it's not as if you are now coming into contact with your students for the first time since the fire, and presumably the students and the families and the teachers have been able to work through at least some of the trauma from last November's fire. But do you think that there's something additional that might be triggered in students and families actually coming back to schools now that are reopened? And a couple of them have been open the whole time, as you mentioned, in uh, Magalia, which is adjoining Paradise. I, I think especially the closer we get to November 8th, we will have some some issues that are triggered, some PTSD in both our staff and students. We are being very proactive so that we can be in tune with this. And we are planning activities. We have several art therapists coming in to work with our younger students. We have some motivational speakers on overcoming trauma and adversity and developing resiliency skills, coming in, talking to our older students and our staff. What is your sense of the extent to which students will be open to receiving this kind of support? I'm sure a lot of these families before the fire probably weren't accustomed to being in therapy or you know any kind of situation where you really need to be in touch with your feelings, be able to express what's going on. Is, is that a challenge? Well, it can be, yes. We have kind of taken the word therapy out of our vocabulary and we talk about the trauma of the fire and that every one of us have gone through those trauma and that we need to be in tune and all the way from myself on down We have shown kids and families that it's okay to ask for help. We all have to ask for help right now. We we need to talk about our trauma and develop our resiliency skills because we're not going to let the fire determine us and who we are and where we're going from here. It doesn't get to control us. We're talking with Superintendent Michelle John from Paradise Unified School District. Superintendent, you yourself have been in the district for 16 years. Were you displaced from the district? I was displaced from the district. Our district office was displaced for nine months, and I was displaced out of our home for nine months. Was your house burnt down? or It was damaged, it was gutted, and now it's back livable. So you're back in your house? I am back in my house, yes. Well, that's great news. Last question. I'm sure you are aware of the fact that many eyes are on the district from outside of Paradise. And unfortunately, given what's happening in California and other states, regrettably, there may be other fires like this in other communities. So how you deal with this, I think, will present some lessons for other districts. I feel that we need to pay it forward and help anyone else that finds themselves in this position None of us went to school and were educated on what to do when a wildfire destroys your entire town. And what I've told my staff and students and everyone is, as long as we keep people first, 
we're going to be okay. It is our job to educate our students and our families, and that's what we're going to do. And we are going to figure out how to do this. We have learned a lot of lessons, and I feel like we now have a lot of information that we can share with others. Well, we really appreciate all the work you're doing on behalf of kids, and we look forward to staying in touch with you and wishing you luck for a great school year. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Michelle John, Superintendent of Paradise Unified. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. You know, fires are just one threat that students face in many communities around the state. Another threat, unfortunately, is the possibility of gun violence and mass shootings like the ones that took place in El Paso, Dayton, and Gilroy over the last few weeks. Unfortunately, in El Paso and Gilroy, the shootings appear to have been driven by anti-immigrant, anti-Latino attitudes linked to white supremacist groups. This week I was at a meeting where I caught up with Fernando Garcia. He's founder of the Border Network for Human Rights based in El Paso. And I thought his reflections had great relevance for California. And I asked him to what extent he sees the massacre in El Paso as an attack on all Latinos and immigrants. What happened in August the 3rd was an attack about a symbol. And when I say that, it's, it's larger than El Paso in many ways because El Paso has been a community that had welcomed immigrants and refugees historically as part of our nature. And we're very proud of that. And we have a, a community that has worked with every sector, immigrants especially, immigrant families and refugee families. And secondly, because El Paso has resisted and, and pushed back on every anti-immigrant strategy of President Trump. It's been in El Paso where they tested family separation, building the walls, all of these different policies. So for us, this was an attack against Hispanics, against Mexicans, against a community across the United States, not only in, in El Paso. Of those who died in the attack, what proportion were Latinos or of Hispanic background? The vast majority of the 22 of them that died uh, believe that 19 are Hispanic or with Mexican heritage. And, and of them, eight of them just crossed the border that day from Juarez, Mexico, into El Paso to go shopping to what is being known as the most Mexican Walmart in the region, which everyday people cross the border to go and, and shop oranges and clothes and go back to Juarez. And that's where these terrorists uh, went to and, and to commit this, this horrible attack. Obviously, it's early days in terms of really knowing what impact this will have on immigrant communities, not only along the border, but across the United States. I'm wondering what extent do you think this is going to provoke fear in your community and especially amongst families and children and kids? Two things I think are important to, to mention. The, the first one is that before the shooting, shooting, our immigrant community was already afraid in El Paso and in the rest of the country because of this immigration enforcement, immigration that was targeting families. I mean, people was afraid to go shopping and to... to take their kids to school. But with this shooting, 
there's a new level of fear. Now you are not only afraid of, of the border patrol eyes, now you are afraid of being targeted because of your color of the skin. I think that is very dramatic, and especially that is happening in the United States. The second thing that also is happening is, is, a, is a reflection of why it is happening, and it is more obvious that there's a connection between this attack, racism, hate, xenophobia, but also it's more obvious that the connection to President Trump's rhetoric. I mean, he has said multiple times that uh, that there's an invasion of, of, of migrants into the country. So I think he also is accountable. I think that is the, res- the, the reflection of our communities that he must be held accountable. I'm just wondering whether you have fears of other potential attacks I mean, given that there's so many guns and we now see this connection between the the people, many of these attacks were tied in with white supremacist groups. We just had an attack in Gilroy at this Gilroy Garlic Festival where several people were killed. There's some question whether that was a hate crime. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we saw is the in- intersection of those two evils. I mean, weapons of war in our streets and white supremacists. Listen, the same day that Trump went to El Paso to comfort, quote-unquote, comfort our families there, which uh, actually most of El Pasoans did not welcome Trump, let me tell you that. The same day, there was a massive immigration rate with 700 people being arrested in Mississippi. So that means that, I mean, the president is, is, is not repentant. He's not, he's, he's not asking for forgiveness. He's, he's not changing his rhetoric against immigrants. And, and nothing had happened in terms of gun control. So we still have the combination of those two things in place for it to happen again. In the weeks and months ahead, and we also have schools that are opening up in the next few weeks, what kinds of reassurances, what, do you, what can you do, what can your community do to try to deal with some of these anxieties? And in this case, a real fears about, about these yeah. kinds of attacks. Yeah. You know, what we are doing in, in El Paso is to get together with families and getting a little bit more organized. What that means is that we need to understand that we cannot act alone. I mean, when we do a reflection on these issues, we need to actually be more aware of what is happening, but we cannot succumb to fear. It's very important. I mean, yes, we're afraid, but instead of just being afraid that would paralyze us, then we will not be able to question what is happening. And the message to families and children? I think America is resilient and our community is resilient. I mean, we're going to move forward. We have a lot of hope uh, at the end of the day, and we're proud of what we are. But I think we need to understand that immigrants are not a threat to this country, but guns and white supremacy, it is. Yes, if something happens in your school and you see something that that doesn't check, uh, you report that. But I think at the end of the day, we need a a fundamental change on those two things, guns and white supremacy. We've been talking with Fernando Garcia. He's the founder of the Border Network on Human Rights in El Paso, Texas. Condolences again to you and the families there, and best of luck for dealing with this in the months ahead. Thank you. You know, John, I can't help be struck by the connection between the tragedies in Paradise and in El Paso and some of these other communities that have been targeted by gun violence. And what the implications of those really terrible events have for schools and for students and how teachers 
cope with them, especially in California, where, as you all know, we have so many Latinos and immigrant students, and the number of wildfires is also increasing substantially. Another threat to many students is the increasing number of deportations by federal immigration authorities, if not to their families, then certainly neighbors. And in all cases, you know, it's the schools that have to deal with the social-emotional impact on children. And the reality is that there are no simple formulas to handle these threats, so many school districts must make things up as they go. We at EdSource will be looking at some of the best practices in how to handle the overall anxiety that teachers and students are experiencing, and we'll be sharing what we learn with you in the coming weeks. Well, that about wraps it up for this week's podcast. We want to thank our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from the Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm John Fensterwald. And I'm Louis Friedberg. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye.